I'm Leslie. And I'm Steph. And this is Church Historia. Welcome to episode three of Church Historia. We are talking about iconoclasm, which is such a fun word to say, and it's riddled with drama and back and forth this episode, as with all of our episodes this season, particularly. So Steph, what exactly about iconoclasm are we talking about? Yeah, so we're going to be looking at the 8th and 9th century in the Byzantine Empire and this debate and struggle that they have over the validity of icons and whether they're this devotional aid or whether they are idols of the worst kind and you know, bring forth God's displeasure. So we're going to look at about a hundred year span of time and we're going to see this position change several times. And as you said, with with lots of drama and and some intrigue there as well. And I think it's going to prompt some really important questions about how majority rule plays into determining orthodoxy for the church, how other cultural factors play into the church settling on what it believes. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited. Yes. Let's do it. Let's learn about iconoclasm. Let's go. And the important we're going to do today is go through this from a chronological standpoint and then do expanded discussion because there is a lot of forwards and backwards um, in this history. So before we talk about iconoclasm, which is the kind of negative being an iconophile, being a lover of icons, pro-icon, we need to talk about that pro-icon Indeed, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So the early church, really from the time that Christians start creating art, um, which is relatively early in Christianity. We talked in the first episode about the fact that we don't usually see buildings, church buildings, until after the Edict of Milan. We do have Christians' art on sarcophaguses. We have some wall paintings in Dura Europis. So we know that Christians are creating art, and a lot of that art has human figures with faces in it. Hmm. So this is kind of a common thing from the beginning of Christianity that we're going to have art, we're going to have decoration, and we're going to show people and show their faces. There's a, I think, really lovely quote from Hypatius, who's the bishop of Ephesus in the 6th century, talking about decoration in general. This is specifically about adornments in churches, but I think it lends itself to our conversation about icons well as well. So he says, We too permit material adornment in the sanctuaries. Not because God considers gold, silver, silken vestments, and vessels encrusted with gems to be precious and holy, but because we allow every order of faith to be guided in a suitable manner to be led but to the Godhead, inasmuch as some men are guided even by such things towards the intelligible beauty and from the abundant light of the sanctuaries to the intelligible and immaterial light. So, Specifically, he's talking about these churches that are covered in mosaics and that gold gilding that's often used as the background Mm -hmm. for church mosaics. There are chandeliers that are made out of silver and gold. There's things encrusted in precious gems. There's pre-electricity, so think candlelight. You're walking into this environment that's Mm. kind of very metallic and glittery, and it's going to create this otherworldly feel. Right. And that, that feeling can help move you from... The abundant light of the sanctuary to the intelligible and immaterial light of God. So, yes, pictures help. Pictures help people who are illiterate, but also there's this creation of, of feeling and of a different sense of space. A lot of that adornment has kind of gone away, and you have these 
rooms that feel more like gymnasiums. And there's not a sense of reverence like when you go into a cathedral, for example, and you enter into that worship space, there's a silencing of your heart and mouth that isn't happening in in churches now. And so I see what he's getting at here is that there's something that happens when we enter a sacred feeling space. Yeah, and I think churches themselves have kind of a non-verbal aspect to them and their theology. And there is, you know, that idea of, of come as you are. Jesus has walked the earth. Jesus is imminent close to us. Right? That's a lot of what undergirds that modern seeker church. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, we have Starbucks out front kind of feeling. Yeah. And there's a lot of theological basis for that as well. These churches in this period are focusing more on a, a theology of God, a God who's eminent, who's out there, who's majestic, who's creator, mm-hmm. who is unique and deserving of that reverence. We talked a lot about this kind of association between Constantine and Justinian and God and being that appointed king. Well, mm-hmm. if your earthly king is walking around in gold robes and gold encrusted chairs to church <laughs> council meetings. You how know, much how, more so? How much more so does mm-hmm. God deserve? Yeah. So— That's not to say, that's not, that's more about churches. Icons are a part of that. And that idea, again, of kind of a a pictorial representation of something that is an aid to contemplating God. It's not that people are praying to the icon or worshiping the icon itself. Mm -hmm. It's that that is a, a devotional aid. It's a guide for getting the heart and mind to God and focusing on God and sort of turning one's thoughts, mind, being towards the divine. Mm-hmm. Um, now, and that line between using that as an aid and then the aid becoming the focal point itself is a really thin one. Mm-hmm. And it probably honestly varies sort of person by person as to where, where they fall along that line. So it's understandable that this is an area of concern, but From its earliest days, the church has been fine with art. One other note I want to make before we get started is during this period we're about to talk talk about the Islamic empires becoming big and really relevant in terms of cultural exchange with the Byzantine Empire. Mm -hmm. And in the Islamic tradition, there's much less figure-based art. And you also have a tradition of obscuring the Prophet Muhammad's face and being let using more motifs of shapes or plants or other other ways of still having a very rich artistic expression, just not doing as much symbolic. It's more just less person based. So I think we also do have to understand that that artistic tradition from the Islamic Empire is also coming in in dialogue with the Byzantine Empire okay. during this time as well. So the end of the last episode, we left off with Justinian, who had brought the Byzantine Empire to this height, but was kind of the first and the last of this grand vision that he had. So unsurprisingly, when you go to war a lot to expand your empire, that puts you in a lot of debt. That also ticks uh-huh. off a lot of the people who land you've been encroaching on. So Justinian's successors really have to deal with paying off these debts, holding on to this land, and they start over time to start to lose some of those territories that they had. And so 
by the end of the seventh century, they've lost Syria, the Holy Land, Egypt, North Africa oh to my. the Islamic Empire alone. They're still a very sizable empire, but just not quite as as large as mm. they had. Mm-hmm. So we're going to pick up with Leo the Third, who is ruling in the early seven hundreds, and in the seven twenties, there's this big underwater eruption. Oh, it's a big natural event, and people take that as Atlantis. A, I'm kidding. May, maybe <laughs> being submerged coming out. I don't know. Could be Atlantis. Is this the lost city? I'm it sorry, might I be your train of thought. <laughs> Well, if it is the lost city, the populace as a whole takes this as a sign that God is displeased. Ah. And Leo is advised by his theological advisors that this is a sign that God is displeased about idol worship. Specifically? Specifically. Because, remember I just said the Islamic Empire is is making a lot of inroads. They specifically rigid non-icon policy. So they're having military success. The Byzantine Empire ah, is struggling. Okay. And also now we have this giant eruption underwater. So people come to the general conclusion that the, the issue is icons and that they've become idols. And so God is displeased about this okay. idol worship. Okay. So that, that, that starts this conversation about legitimacy of icons, banning icons. Leo III Bans icons, so that's our first iconoclasm or iconoclast being against icons okay. movement. In the West, the Pope and Rome disagree. The Byzantine icon tradition is different than the Western, what will become Catholic tradition of using icons and pictures, but they still share this use of pictures as devotional aids. So the Pope disagrees and is also ticked off that the emperor is making religious, theological mandate and kind of thinks he's overstepping his bounds as Hmm. emperor. That being said, I mean, we saw this with Justinian writing edicts, you know, anathemizing people who had been dead for a century. So this idea that a a ruler would make a theological edict is not unprecedented. It just doesn't agree with Pope. And so they kind of go back and forth. So the Pope, can you just real quick tell me where the Pope came from? If the Catholic Church hasn't been founded yet, the Pope will... Yeah, there are heads of the church in a number of cities. Generally speaking, they are patriarchs in the Greek-speaking eastern part of the empire, in Alexandria, and Constantinople, Antioch. There's a couple of other ones. And then in Rome in the west, we have the Pope, kind of the direct successor of Peter. And oh. so they are equals, but the Pope is kind of first amongst equals, kind so of, but not. So historically, the Pope kind of came to being as just someone in the community that was just a little bit more knowledgeable spiritually so you, and had more of a leadership position. Yeah. So if you think about you've got your kind of priest at your local congregation and then your local congregation has maybe exists within a, a broader diocese that's mm-hmm. ruled over by a bishop, and then ultimately they're going to roll up to either the pope or the patriarch. We get to the schism in 1054 where the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church formally split. Then the pope is going to take on a, a slightly more elevated okay. role in the— but the structure was still built before the formation of the proper Catholic Church. Yes, yes. Th- this kind of hierarchical— structure, really useful for administrative purposes when you're trying to administer something over. But it seems like that didn't take on in the East. 
Well, it, it looks a little bit different in the East where the patriarchs are ruling more regionally and there's a little bit more room for regional autonomy. Okay. So Leo III puts in this policy of iconoclasm. His son, Constantine V, continues the policy and really enshrines it, developed theology. Constantine V himself is, again, really interested in theology. And he does a lot of writing about this and a lot of analysis on his own. And he actually says that the only true image of Christ is the Eucharist. Interesting. So the consecrated host is the kind of hmm. best image we have of Christ Interesting. on earth. There's a lot of theology going into that. There is. There is. And I do think it's worth pointing out that, you know, both Constantine V and with Darcini in the last episode, like, these guys are theologians. This is what they do yeah. in their free time is they study and they think and they they really care mm -hmm. about this. This is not maybe Constantine where he was like, I don't really care what position y'all come to you. I just need you to sort yourselves out. out. Yeah. Constantine the fifth and Justinian, they care a lot. Hmm. So Constantine the fifth calls the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which I'm going to call Part One, part in one. 754, because he calls this council, but not all the patriarchs show and Rome doesn't show. So you don't have representation from all of Christendom right. at this council. You have a small subset, and they're like, yes, we agree. But all the people who didn't, didn't agree, agree didn't here. show up. <laughs> so it's an ish one on the church councils. Also, Constantine V is really successful militarily during his reign. Mm. And so he gets the backing of the military for this iconoclast position. And that's going to be a big deal as we go through these next ebb and flows is what does the military feel about icons? Mm. And do and often in direct association to are they winning or not? Mm. We're skipping forward in time fairly significantly to Constantine V rules from 741 to 775. So we are well situated here in the late, mid to late 700s now. Okay. So after Constantine V dies, we have his son, Leo IV, who succeeds him. Leo IV marries Irene, who we talked a little bit about. We've heard about Irene yes. before. This is the same Irene. This is the same Irene. Okay. So... While Constantine VI is growing up, they collectively call the Seventh Ecumenical Council Part Two. Yeah. So this one is in 787, and it's held in Nicaea, and it's called in their name, and it's to undo the work of that Part One Council in 754 and to reinstate icons. Because there's been, hmm. while there was a lot of support for Leo III and Constantine V about removing icons. I don't know that they quite convinced the masses of that. There's a lot of interesting evidence of people like hiding icons or plastering over hmm. walls and things that then we've been able to find because they've been super well preserved because uh -huh. they were you know, kind of a false wall was put up in front of it so never got exposed to the elements. So oh. the military well, it was sounds convinced. Like there were a lot of people that weren't even there to trickle, to disseminate information. Correct. And they didn't agree. And then you have the Pope in the West kind of constantly saying, no, you're wrong. So there's a lot of just kind of general feeling of mm, we've done the done the wrong thing. So the actual Seventh Ecumenical Council, if you 
want to do the official count of the eight early ones, is called in the name of Irene and Constantine VI. And that one actually everybody does show up for. Irene and Constantine VI, they show up at the end, basically, and essentially take credit for Mm. the council coming to this new conclusion, and they endorse this declaration of faith, which restores the icons. It was an interesting note, and one of the things I read about, they probably signed it in red ink, which was reserved for Byzantine rulers. Oh. So... You know, this declaration is endorsed by the monarchy now. Um, make it extra, extra special, extra legit. <gasps> wow! But also, you get credit among the pro icon population for having restored this really important element huh. of faith. Okay. So that goes semi well, but as we mentioned last time, Irene and Constantine VI don't don't get along super well. Right. Um, Things got weird there. Yep. Between they, they mother get, and son. They get a little weird, and also the military is still pro-iconoclasm. So, ultimately, Irene... The military can have an opinion about that? Yes. Right? Because military is made up of people with a faith position. Yeah. And they're really persuasive because they're the ones who can keep you in charge or get you not in charge. And so, Irene ends up kicking all of the pro-iconoclast military people and their families out of Constantinople. Oh, my. So <laughs> mixed mixed results about whether or not she is uh, beloved by the population. But <laughs> she becomes empress, rules for a little while. Um, she names herself thus. Names herself thus. And then rules until 802, where she's ousted in a coup led by Nikophorus, Oof. if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who is the... Finance minister. And so he That's rules. An interesting tidbit. Yeah. So he rules from 802 to 811. And generally speaking, seems to have been not super well liked, mostly because Irene was really prone to giving lavish gifts and things. And so she kind of left things in debt. He had to raise taxes to get them back out of debt. Nobody ever likes you when you raise taxes. Also, wasn't a super great military leader, probably because he was really good at finance and yeah, not, that was not developed his military skills quite as much. Mm-hmm. So he dies. Then we have the next emperor who rules for a year. He Then we have Drakios. This makes me wish I took Greek. Starakios. Starakios. I like it. So he rules for a year. And then he dies. Oh, wow. So, Poor dude. Yep. So in the span of 811, we have one emperor die, another one come to power die, and then we have our, our third fellow here in who is Michael wow. the... First, who's going to rule for two years from 811 to 813. And he was Strokokius's sister's husband. Oh, so interesting. We talked last episode about the kind of importance of marriage and marrying yeah. into lines. So we can see some of that going on here. And Michael was known for his piety and his generosity to the church. And he's also a pretty good military leader. That's kind of how he had come into relevance. But he had some struggles on the Bulgarian border with some invasions and then the population rebelling. And so things were a little bit rocky. And so he was ultimately asked to resign. So Michael abdicates. He and his family all go enter monastery. Mm. And now we have Leo V on the throne. So if you followed, we just went through like four emperors and (laughs) at least the last one didn't die. 
And, so, and it sounds like this is happening so quickly that there's not much in terms of church history that's really being, they don't really have much time to make big waves. Right. When you're ruling for a year, two. Yeah. It's, it's hard. But Leo V will start to change some things. Okay. So starting in 814, so basically right after he comes into power, he reinstitutes iconoclasm. Again. Yes, because the military has been losing. And so, again, this is interpreted as God's displeasure for the worship of that is so icons interesting. and you know, idol worship. I mean, so, does that go back to the Old Testament? Examples of, mm-hmm. you know. There's a lot of heavy reliance on the Second Commandment yeah. and, that, and that precedent. The pro-icon group tends to use a lot more arguments coming from tradition and church fathers and kind of the perspective of um, the iconoclast movement tends to point at the second commandment and all of the instructions against idols. Sure, okay. It's kind of generally how their arguments break down. Also, Leo V is using Constantine V as his kind of hero or guide that he's trying to model himself after. Because Constantine V was kind of our last, like, like he was great. Yeah. They were really the Byzantine Empire was really successful. The military was really successful under him. So great. We're gonna we're gonna do what he did. So we're gonna reinstitute iconoclasm. So in 815, he there's a synod held at the Hagia Sophia, which declares icons to be idols and condemns them. And they basically just rehash all of the arguments that were made under Leo the Third. And Constantine V, they're just like, yep, what they said, that was right. We're bringing it back. So a synod versus a council, an ecumenical council. So this sounds like it's more of a political meeting of people. And it's a much smaller, this is about the Byzantine Empire and okay. how it's going to deal with icons. Not the Less church. Less about the as church okay. as a global yeah, right. entity. So the military is like, yes, good. Icons are out. God will return his favor Put to us. in the closet. Yep. And much like last time, there's some overt resistance to this iconoclasm. There's some covert resistance to this iconoclasm. It's really hard to tell how the population as a whole felt about it. Again, we know the military was excited, but it seems a little bit inconsistent about everybody else. Um, So because the Byzantine Empire has to have some drama... Always. There hasn't been enough drama recently. We are about to get to... We are about to get to some drama. Excellent. So Leo V dies in an assassination that was led by some conspirators with Michael the Armoranian, who was his military buddy who he had worked with to put down that rebellion that I had mentioned under Michael I. Oh, my. Also, if you're a little lost in the Leos and the Michaels and the Constantines... Yes, there's quite a... There's a lot of them. But basically, he was assassinated by his friend? His friend's conspirators. So not directly by his friend, but his friend's lackeys. But it gets better because he was assassinated on Christmas Day in 820 while Mm. he was performing the Christmas liturgy in church. The assassins disguised themselves in the choir at the church and murdered him (laughs) in the front of the sanctuary. Christmas. So I'm, while he's doing the oh my goodness. Yes. Okay. So you know, I feel like there's a lot of things to be said about sacred space and desecration of sacred space and irreverence towards sacred space. Yes. Yeah. There, somebody must have 
studied that and had had some research there. I didn't initially come across it, but I just imagine there's going to be a lot there when you decide it's the appropriate place to murder the emperor is in church while he's participating in service. So they knew he'd be there. They knew he'd be there. And it's also very public and dramatic. So Indeed. if you're looking to make a statement, I guess that wow. that works. Okay. So we then have Michael II, who is now crowned emperor. Excellent. <laughs> and well, he's going to second. Yep. And he's going to rule from 820 to about 829. And kind of interesting, he stammered is one of the sort of things that has been recorded in history about him. Really? He was uneducated. He has kind of questionable orthodoxy. But, you know, he's here and he's doing his thing. <laughs> So he, slightly after he becomes emperor, his first wife, Thakela, dies. And initially he doesn't want to remarry. Again, that seems like a love match. But the Senate is like, eh, you really need to remarry. You're, you're very questionable here as an emperor. Like, <laughs> we, need, we need some legitimacy. So how do we get legitimacy as an emperor? We marry someone who has been in the line before? Correct. Is, yes, somehow involved in the line of emperors. Yes. Yes, okay. correct. And who was the lucky lady? So this is, again, apologies to everyone who can speak Greek. Europhysny? Europhysny? Europhysny. Europhysny. I might call her E because e. I feel bad butchering her name. Yeah. So she is Irene's granddaughter. Aha. And the daughter of Constantine VI and his first wife, Maria. Okay. So okay. Irene made Constantine VI marry Maria. That's right. They had a child together who was E. Okay. Constantine then divorced Maria so that he could marry his long-term mistress, right. Theodote. Mm -hmm. Maria and E get exiled to a monastery. The, the exiling is just... Quite excessive. Yeah. It, Get mm. out. Like, <laughs> also, it's probably worth noting that there aren't really prisons at this point. Oh, okay. So sending someone to a remote monastery where they can be monitored is like... Kind of like prison. Kind of like prison. Okay. Kind of like house arrest. Kind of like exile. <laughs> it's a li little bit of all of the above. So E grows up in this monastery and... I think I mentioned last time, too, this divorce was really controversial because Maria didn't do anything wrong. There were no grounds for divorce other than Constantine just didn't want to be married to her and wanted to be married to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So there is this kind of undercurrent that Maria's legitimate empress, which makes illegitimate in, as a woman, she couldn't inherit the throne, but like, the, she, could she, marry. Has a, she has a legitimacy line Indeed. going through her. And at this particular monastery... They were iconophiles and pro-icons, mm. so she learned iconophile theology and practice. So, again, we're talking about those kind of pockets of resistance. Right. This right. is one, one of, of those. So, Michael II basically brings her out of exile at the monastery, which she spent her entire life at, by the way. So, like, she's... Yeah, it's a bit of a culture shock. But I imagine it was a bit of a culture shock. So, he marries her, and then that gives him that kind of legitimacy of its connection to the successful military line and all of that. So, And remind me, where are we at in the reversal of iconoclasm at this point? He, so, so he's continuing on with this. He's a kind of moderate iconoclast okay. position. He's like, right. yeah, let's, we'll keep it. But he's not like hardcore 
okay. about it. In 829, Michael II dies of kidney disease at home. So a little bit more quiet of an, of an end for Michael. But that leaves his son, Theophilus, who is the son with his first wife, to inherit the throne. And Theophilus is about 16 at the time. So E is technically coming in as uh. regent. And because he's not quite... Old and she's enough. a stepmother, though. And she's a stepmom. So how much role she played in him ruling versus how much he kind of got to do on his own is a little bit murky. But he comes to the throne, and then he gets married okay. in 430 to Theodora. So this is, for our intents and purposes, Theodora II. Indeed. Not the Theodora of Justinian and Theodora, right. but now we have Theophilus and Theodora. And they have a number of children, and tradition holds that Theodora would take the grandchildren to go visit their grandmother, to go visit E, and she would teach them the iconophile traditions and rituals kind of in secret. So you have this sort of, I don't know, rebellion within the emperor's household mm. where you have this thread of icon worship and ritual kind of ha happening right under the emperor's nose. Oh my. Interesting that E didn't get exiled again. It just seems to me like whenever you become irrelevant, you're sent away. Yeah, I mean, she she retired out of the palace, but was not exiled. Mm -hmm. The empress mother still has a really relevant uh, role, and there's kind of a, okay. a passing of the torch in a way of yeah. Theophilus married Theodora. Theodora kind of took on that mantle, and then, yeah. and then he kind of retires into maybe some genteel advisorship. Okay. Um, again, unless you're Irene and you just... <laughs> make a bid for the throne. Indeed. Theophilus was raised iconoclast. Iconoclast, he's continuing on with this iconoclast policy, but we have this sort of movement within mm. his household, being led by the women in his household in a pro-iconophile <laughs> way. Hmm. So he dies in 842 of dysentery. Man. Yeah. And he has four older daughters and then one son, Michael. And when he dies, Michael is two. So now Theodora is going to step in as the regent for uh -huh. Michael until he can rule on his own. All right. Uh, so she is regent from 842 to 856. And one of the first things she does as regent, about 14 months after she comes into power, so this is early 843, she starts working to reverse iconoclasm uh -huh. again. Hmm. So given how early in her regency, she does this. It seems like it's a matter of fairly strong importance to her. Unfortunately, we don't have her own words hmm. on the matter. So we have to speculate a little bit there. But she is very active in overturning this. Now, her challenge is that her husband, Theophilus, was an iconoclast. And so right. if you reverse this position... And he gets declared a heretic. What does that mean for the, the three-year-old trying to right. hold on to the throne? So she has this, like, gymnastics act that she has to do to make it seem like, or to, I wasn't there. It's possible. You weren't. It, I know. Shocking. Sorry, sorry, everyone. So it is possible. Yeah. So it's possible that Theophilus had a legitimate change of heart. I'm going to guess he probably didn't. So that's the way I'm going to tell the story. Okay. So... She has to find a way to reverse this policy, but keep Theophilus in good light that keeps his memory strong. And then Michael can kind of carry on to ultimately take the throne when he comes of age. So 
what happens is we get this story of a deathbed revelation uh, where he was, you know, kind of stricken with sickness and he was very, very tortured in his in his spirit. It was because he was convicted of his misdeeds around persecuting iconophiles. And so he's, he's struggling and then there's a, a religious advisor who brings an icon to him and he kisses the icon and he feels better and he recants his iconoclast position and repents and becomes an iconophile. We have this deathbed transformation. Okay. With that out there and communicated, we can then begin this functional then restoration of icons. This is interesting because this is not a, there's not a council here that's reinforcing the iconophile positions. The kind of imperial power has declared it, but now there's a change out of a lot of leadership of clergy from mm. iconoclast leaders to iconophile leaders. Mm. And a lot of bringing iconophiles back from exile and then exiling the iconoclast. So it takes about a year for everything to be sorted out. But then the first Sunday of Lent, the court meets at the Hagia Sophia and they celebrate this new pro-icon liturgy, which is still used in the Orthodox Church today on the first Sunday of Lent. And hmm. it's I've read part of it and it is very pro the orthodoxy of icons, like very explicit about how icons are great. And iconoclasm is awful, and wow. uh, there's no there's no wondering about the position on icons in that okay. liturgy. Okay. In retrospect, this reversing back to a pro-icon position, there's then this explosion in in the art Byzantine art because now you're we have to replace all of these icons that have been destroyed over the last hundred ish years of hundred fifty years of iconoclasm. Just kidding. Bring it back. Nope. Back. Yeah. So. <laughs> At the time, it doesn't seem like this made a ton of waves, but we look back on it and it had a big impact on Byzantine art, but then also this is the position that finally sticks. And so we are finally a pro-icon theology. This is a really interesting thing to look at because there's so much back and forth and it doesn't take a ton of time for that back and forth. You know, theology is rarely static. I would say it, it changes a lot, it evolves a lot as people have new concerns and encounter new things and new questions. It's, it's constantly in dialogue. But this is about a hundred year span of time where we see these pretty dramatic swings. And I think it, you know, it, it becomes fair to ask the question, how much of theology is just based on majority rule? Yeah. Iconic, both of the iconoclasm movements are heavily supported by the military, who is losing at the time, and who is seeing their enemies who are non-icon using group being successful. And then when we return to an iconophile position, the military kind of doesn't, at that point, they, they don't have a strong opinion, so you huh. don't have that underlying threat, I guess. I do think it makes us have to ask that question of, you know, is this just majority rule? And, you know, if that's the conclusion that people come to, I don't know that I can say that they're wrong. I think what we can say to maybe nuance it a bit is to just come back to this point again about how much this theology mattered to people and how much they cared and they cared about getting it right deeply and passionately and fervently and zealously. 
And so they're studying scripture, they're studying theology, they're studying the works of, you know, those who, the giants of the faith who've come before them, and they're coming to a conclusion and a position, and they're fighting for that position really hard. It just happens to be that folks come to different different opinions regarding it. And I, I think maybe it reminds us to have some humility in our positions that as much as we study and think and reflect that we could be wrong. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably just true across the board on whatever beliefs that we have. It's not to say don't have beliefs or that everything is relative or squishy or made up, but I think just calling for some humility and some grace in there being those multiple multiple threads and multiple yeah. colors of threads. There's more conversation in this topic around military and around other societies kind of are popular opinion. Right, popular yeah. opinion. We should change our theology because obviously God is not favoring us at the moment. There's more of that conversation entering in, which is a really interesting tension, but then there are some of these leaders who are actively studying theology that you're saying really care and are thoughtful. But there is this kind of theme of like, mm, but that military is better than us and they don't do it, so we shouldn't either, you know? And so that's an interesting theme that presents itself in this that we, have, that we haven't yet talked about. But I think it goes back to maybe what's becoming the theme of this season of overlapping cultures, of mm -hmm. you have a religious culture and a military culture and a political culture and you know, all of these things are in are in dialogue. It's not just a purely theoretical argument about the validity of icons. It's, look, there's a giant underwater volcano that exploded. Like, that's terrifying. We're losing militarily. Our enemies who are not Christians and who don't have icons are being successful. There's all of these other inputs that are going that are going into this conversation about icons. Mm -hmm. And again, those kind of overlapping spheres. We can't just look at church history, look at theology in isolation and, and pretend it's in this kind of pristine little box that only takes place within the, the four walls of the church. It's absolutely in dialogue with everything yeah. around. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Church Historia. We really appreciate you joining us on this journey. If you want more, you can always check on our website at churchhistoria.com where you can join our email list. And do be sure you subscribe to this show on your platform of choice so that you will always know when we have a new episode. And as always, if you enjoy what we do, we'd love it if you would share it with others as well. So if you like it, spread the word, tell your friends. We would be so grateful. Thanks so much. Thanks.